This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in French Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sarah Miles. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of talking to Joseph Peterson. Joe is an assistant professor of history at the University of Southern Mississippi, whose research focuses on Catholicism and Islam in 19th century France and the French Empire. His first monograph, which we'll be talking about today, just came out in 2022 with Oxford University Press and is entitled Sacred Rivals, Catholic Missions and the Making of Islam in 19th Century France and Algeria. So, Joe, thanks so much for being here. Thrilled to have you. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you for taking the time to read the book and talk with me today. Um, I, I always say, and I, I truly believe that, that reading someone's work is, um, is an act of intellectual gener- generosity, and I, I really appreciate your time and your willingness to engage with, with the stories I tell in Sacred Rivals. Absolutely. It was a real it was a real pleasure to read the book, so I appreciate you sharing it with us. Um, so to get us started, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you came to French history in general and perhaps to the kind of religious history of France and French colonialism in particular. Yeah. Um, how did I come to French history? Um, we're both historians, so I guess we should be willing to historicize ourselves, right? Um, but the question is which which methodology to use <laughs> on on my on my own story, uh, not not great man, not great man theory, right? So I'm, I'm not, <laughs> it's probably best to avoid that one. World, world historical, uh, a French historian transforming the world here. No, um, <laughs> uh, psycho history. I, I could psychoanalyze myself, right? That's um, a different podcast. I think that's not this one. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll start with uh, with the teleological approach, sort of um, that it was it was just inevitable that I was I was destined to become a historian of, of French Catholicism, um, and I guess for from that perspective, uh, the truth is that I. Maybe I was destined because I actually haven't fallen too far from the tree. My my late dad was a history teacher. I talk about him in, in the acknowledgments. My mom is an English teacher, um, so I you know grew up around books, as they say, and. Um, being an educator was always a live option and something that was seen as a valuable vocation for me. I even briefly majored in English when I was a freshman before uh, switching to history. But even as an English major, I thought I was I was more interested in in the in the contexts of those of those cultural artifacts than than analyzing literature in in some sort of autonomous textual way. Uh, so so cultural history, I think, has always been something I was it, it just seemed like a natural fit there. 
and switched pretty quickly as a freshman to, to, to majoring in history. Um, so there's, there's the telos. <laughs> but, um, but, but when it comes to why French history, there's, there's more contingency. Right? There's, the, there's the accident. It was not, <laughs> it was not there were lots of potential paths. Um, I wasn't like always a Francophile or something or just obsessed with the wine and the cheese, although I suppose I am now. But I'm, you develop this later in life. Yeah, I do, I do love being in France. But um, when I was finishing up my undergrad, I had, I had taken some German. And if I re- recall correctly, I was, I was reading some of the essays in Karl Schorska's magnificent Fin de Siecle Vienna. I'm sure you know it. And if we took like a straw poll of like everybody who has been inspired to become a cultural historian, I think it would be like the winning book in the one that inspired the most people. And so having taken some German, having read some of that and just seen the incredible richness and complexity of that moment, 1890s, 1900s, um, Vienna, uh, you know, Freud, Klimt, Kafka and all that. Um, I thought that was what I was interested in. But the school that I got into to sort of try my hand at the MA level, Clemson University, in South Carolina, didn't have anybody at the time working on Central Europe, and so I say, I say, um, contingency. And a wonderful man, Alan Grubb, who's a French historian, uh, different region but the same time period, late nineteenth century, under his wing, and I, I began to see some of the the cultural riches of that field, and some of the same same sort of fin de siècle dynamics, of course, and began to study French. Um, uh, had not taken any French until I was uh, working on my masters. Um, at this point, I have to mention uh, the person that um, admitted me into PhD studies, my late, um, great, brilliant, compassionate uh, John Merriman who, who at Yale who passed away uh, just last year. And he, um, as I think I've said elsewhere, he took a chance on me, someone who um, was a recent convert to French history and had kind of an unorthodox, not at all elite training up to that, <laughs> up to that point in time. And, and I just owe John more than I could, could express for him taking me on and mentoring me. And I guess I will always be um, hoping to eventually know, know and love France as, as well as he did, although I'm not sure that's possible. So that's, that's the, the, the telos and then also the contingency of my story. But I'm going to do a little psychohistory. You asked me about religion. I'm going to try to psychoanalyze myself. And where that's probably where my interest in religion and politics comes in is, 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 is deeper. Um, I, I was raised in a pretty conservative religious environment myself, and um, I've left the politics of that upbringing behind and sort of like really fundamentalist ways of interpret- interpreting that faith tradition behind, but I, I do still practice Christianity. Um, I think it was Peter Gay or some, somebody said something like, um, all history writing is autobiography, right? So, so perhaps I'm interested in debates about religion in the public square uh, perhaps I'm really interested in um, the difficulties and the choices of how to be a person of faith in a, in a pluralistic context, right? Uh, interreligious dialogue, that, that that kind of thing, because these are the paths that I have had to sort of come up from, and the, the questions that I've had to confront. And so maybe, you know, I, I know a lot of historians of like U.S. evangelicalism or U.S. fundamentalism themselves are like former evangelicals, and now they. You know, it feels like a little bit too close, but like it would be too much therapy to write t- literally about the milieu that I come from, but maybe, right, I, right. maybe a little more distance. Maybe I'm in a displaced way. You see the point sort of still writing about that. <laughs> the, the, the questions of religion and belonging and politics that, that I have personal investment in, um, but in a French context. So maybe that's, too, maybe that's too presentist to, to, to make a comparison between, between my upbringing and questions about religion in the, in the current, U.S. public sphere, but I, I can't avoid it, right? And the French 19th century. 
Yeah, no, and I think that was that was one of the really striking things about this book is how much it is both very far removed from the present world and also sort of as you you bring it in your conclusion, as we'll talk about later, very much part and parcel of debates that are still happening in France, but also in the US about different faiths, about different kind of um, relationships between faith and politics and how people negotiate that, right? That's a really um, present debate as well um, and a really relevant one to bring up. So that makes some sense. Um, so there's so much we could talk about in this book. Um, it's so rich, um, both in terms of kind of the stories that you tell and the conceptual arguments you're making here about the evolution of religion, colonialism, French ideas about Islam over the course of the whole 19th century. And, and really it was a joy to read and very readable. So um, I, I do appreciate that. Um, so the book, book kind of maps out the transformation, as you put it, of, of Catholic talk, right, about Islam, uh, moving from, surprisingly to me, at least a kind of positive view in the 1940 or the 1840s to a rather violently negative view um, at the close of the 19th century. Um, and in a lot of ways, it kind of strikes me as a story of a multitude of contradictions. Um, so you show that conservative Catholics were maybe originally more sympathetic to Islam than one might think, while liberal Catholics later on contributed to the kind of denigration and even violent rejection of Algerian Muslims um, based on a new kind of racialized ideology. Um, so given the story that many of us maybe not familiar with this period might imagine about conservative Christians being maybe more violently opposed to Islam than their liberal counterparts. I'm wondering if maybe you can talk through how you came to the conclusion that this, this was the other way around than one might presume, right? How did you kind of arrive at that end point? Thank you for that really, really good question. And thanks, thanks for <laughs> describing the, the sort of meta narrative of the book, maybe even better than I could have myself. Um, yeah, the, the short answer is, Yes, that that is a kind of I guess meta narrative that did emerge as I began to as I began to to see the contrasts between the way some of the figures that I call sort of more conservative Catholics, ultramontane Catholics like Louis Voyot, the famously uh, sort of um, ultramontane and very very just viscerally right wing Catholic guy, uh, famous journalist in nineteenth century France, Louis Voyot, his friend Eugène Boré. And then some of the, the Jesuits that I look at, the, the, the apparently more sympathetic way that they talked about Islam, and then the way more elite uh, liberal Catholics, like the Marquis de Vaugouet and other Catholics in his um, milieu that had kind of pretensions to mainstream scholarly respectability, right? Orientalist um, uh, academic pretensions, the way those more mainstream liberal Catholics talked about Islam. I did start to see this, um, this contrast that you just described where where, yeah, perhaps counterintuitively, as, I, as I've said, and as you said, um, it was the conservatives who, whether sincerely or just as a, just as a rhetorical ploy, right, uh, talked about Islam in, in more admiring ways, you know, at the quote unquote, at least, at least the Muslims believe in something, you know, well, we, we have some affinities here with Muslims because we do, we too feel alienated and marginalized by, by secularism, right? That's the way the conservatives kind of talked. And so, that is something that I, that I think emerged from the sources themselves, I hope, right, from the material and not something that, that, that I sort of imposed on the material. But of course, I also have been inspired by scholarship like that of, of um, Joseph Massad, for example, and then other scholarship related to these arguments that focus on the ways that <laughs> classical liberalism, right, from, from Montesquieu, from, from Oriental despotism, right, down to John Locke, down to, to Huntington's Clash of Civilizations, right? A sort of classical liberal view that, that did have this Islamophobic streak ever since the beginning. The ways in which the ways in which 
classical liberalism was almost self-consciously constructed as opposed to an imaginary illiberal Muslim world. Uh, we could paraphrase Voltaire, right? If, if Islam had not existed, liberalism would have needed to invent it, right? Uh, for the purposes of, of its own identity construction. Right? What, what, whatever, whatever the Ottoman Empire is, that's the opposite of what like a modern liberal nation state is, right? Uh, not, not minority rights, not sort of um, uh, religious tolerance that's managed by the state or intolerance, but instead is sort of Rousseauian, we're all equal, um, all have civil rights, we're all cogs in the same barrel here. Uh, that's, that's the imaginary uh, liberalism that constructs itself in opposition to an imagined Muslim world, quote unquote. And so I was bringing that, that, theory, that lens to the material, as I'm sure you can tell, but, but hopefully also letting the material speak for itself. I'm, I'm glad you asked this, though, because I do have a, a caution or a caveat about the, 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 um, the narrative that, that sort of guides the whole book and upon which I hang all the stories I wanted to tell. Um, the idea that ultramontane or conservative Catholics were generally more sympathetic to Islamic faith and practice and liberal Catholics were not. That's that is a meta narrative. Right. That's, that's, and that's and, and that's all it is. What I mean by that is it's actually not, I don't think it's my most important argument. It is the reductive narrative that made the most sense to hang all these diverse stories and arguments on, right? The stories I uncovered, the stories I wanted to tell about the way these mainstream Catholics reacted with such rhetorical violence to the massacres of Syria, about the way missionaries uh, who were sort of more ultramontane in their, in their religious sensibility, the way they were much more sympathetic uh, and had a very sort of momentarily productive relationships with uh, Muslim Algerians, right? Uh, these are the stories I wanted to tell. And as I tried to fit them together, this was the narrative, this was the, the guiding narrative uh, that, that made the most sense. But it, you know, I, I make no claims to, um, to comprehensiveness or, or full representativity of all Catholic views of, of, of Islam, right? Um, of course, there are other ways to narrate the 19th century. I'm sure there are people that we could um, put in the ideal typical category of liberal Catholic who are more sympathetic, just like we could put people in the category of conservative Catholic who never had any admiration for Islam at all. Right. So that's, that's my caveat. <laughs> no, that's an important caveat. And I think it's also maybe the other caveat that I, I notice you making oftentimes in the book is, and you say it here as well, right? Is that a kind of philo, philo Islamism is not a pro Islam necessarily, right? It's sympathy in some kind of imagined rhetorical way is not necessarily positive or nonviolent or beneficial um, to the people that it's targeting about it's imagining. And I think, I think you do a really great job in the book kind of insisting on the fact that all of this is predicated on the reality of settler colonial violence, right? That this is always a kind of backdrop upon which it's happening. Um, and oftentimes a kind of overt topic of, of the chapters and of the writing. So it's not, not to suggest that one of those is necessarily better for people or that one of those is necessarily sort of not doing violence in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can I say something about that? Yeah, please. <laughs> uh, because I, I really appreciate you mentioning that, and I'm, I'm glad it came through. Um, how ambivalent and sort of unimpressed I ultimately am by the conservatives, like Vio or Bore or the Jesuits who invoke Islam, quote unquote, as a positive thing or claim to admire Islam, but usually as just an oblique way of of, of beating on their so-called godless enemies at home. You know, at least the Muslims believe in something, quote unquote, that kind of thing. It's important what you just said that this that this this rarely ever amounted to a genuine solidarity 
like a genuine coalition building <laughs> around anti-imperialism, right? Um, a genuine coalition between Christians and Muslims against imperialism. And yet you probably can tell from the book that like occasionally, like at the end of the introduction and then again in the end, I kind of like do hold out hope that there could be right? such such genuine sympathy, right? Um, I, I kind of suggest that these coalitions might have been possible, right? Even though Catholic sense of marginalization and victimhood even did make them critical of imperialism sometimes, it was usually cynical, right? And I, I also don't want people to come away thinking that I'm saying like that it was cranky European conservatives who sort of invented anti-colonialism or that or that anti-colonialist thinkers needed to be taught to be anti-colonialist by, by right-wing European cranks, right? Um, but it's, really, it's a really complex and sticky issue, which, which, which continues into the 20th century. It's hard to describe these dynamics accurately, even in those later periods, because even in later periods, it's true that sometimes you have more like cultural critics in Europe or more conservative Europeans who are worrying about European decline, for example, or feel a sense of alienation. And some of these were the first people to, to, to quote unquote, provincialize Europe, as I think others, uh, as I think Adam Tooze might have argued that, that like someone like Spengler after World War I in Germany, that he becomes an inspiration for anti-colonial thinkers in colonized spaces, right? And you, you see what I mean? You have to be careful in how you talk about this because it doesn't mean that once those European influences and people who felt decline and realized that sort of European civilization, quote unquote, wasn't the top dog anymore. If someone in an anti-colonial space is inspired by that rhetoric or sees solidarity with that rhetoric, like M.A. Césaire or something is inspired by Spengler, that doesn't mean he needed to be taught by Spengler that colonialism was bad, right? <laughs> that, that, that's, that's a creative appropriation, as I think many people have described it. Right. Just like Toussaint Louverture didn't need to be taught by the French that all men are created equal. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So just again, because somebody takes inspiration from that doesn't necessarily mean that that is what the original author intended by it. Right. You can take sort of ways to think about something without it necessarily being a, a replication of what the original person meant in many ways. Right. Right. So exact, exactly. So it's, it's, I want that to be clear when I'm talking about European conservatives and, and right-wing Catholics who felt so marginalized that it gave them a vantage point at which to say maybe maybe European civilization, maybe European imperialism isn't all it's cracked up to be. Um, that could be a productive thing, but that doesn't mean those people are the originators of, of anti-colonialism. I'm not, I'm not claiming that at all, right? And then today we have people who do this in even more cynical ways, right? We have conservatives in our own country. I'm going to do, do the presentist thing here, but they, they feel so marginalized by society that they often try to claim that they are the real victims of racism or they are the real victims of colonialism, right? And I've written about this elsewhere, but um, that certainly doesn't make those people real anti-colonialists. And it usually is a distraction from, from real colonialism, right? But <laughs> I, I still think that at the heart of that analogy, if you're someone who, who can see the analogy between two groups that are oppressed, right? Maybe at a moment when you are feeling, when, when these figures are feeling particularly um, marginalized or alienated by, by European society, that, that could have been a productive moment for them, even though it ultimately usually was not, right? Analogies like that, they can be like toxic and violent and they can be, make an analogy between your own suffering in the metropole or something or your own sense of alienation and that of like an actually colonized person, right? That is like 
really toxic in a way, and that's sort of stealing the fire of anti-colonialism and itself is a kind of racist thing to do. But on the flip side, an analogy like that, if it was done in good faith, that would be at the heart of, of genuine coalition building, right? And so, yeah, it's... Right, so there's potential in that rhetoric, even if it's not necessarily always meant in a way that is kind of solidarity building or coalition building, as you say. Barely meant in that way, but but yeah. You see, you see, it's hard, it's hard to talk. <laughs> it's hard right. to We're always existing in the gray areas. It's a hard, yeah. Yeah, so maybe in thinking about kind of putting, putting ideas in context in this way, um, to start at the beginning of the story that you're talking, so you, you sort of open up with a discussion of how French Orientalists um, imagine the kind of Muslim world right through the 18th and 19th centuries, leading up to the invasion of Algeria in 1830. Um, and I was really struck by sort of how carefully you show the evolution of French religious debates in the context of Algeria. Um, showing how this new kind of context provides religious challenges um, as well as opportunities to kind of experiment with missionization and religious education for Jesuits who are uh, potentially getting into some hot water in France. So I'm wondering if you might talk a little bit about how the debates about the role of Catholicism in France get imported and transformed in Algeria um, and sort of how in turn these debates in Algeria are getting reincorporated into the French social and political landscapes of the, the early 19th century. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a, a great question, and really at the heart of what I try to do in those opening chapters. Thank you. Um, I think in so if we're talking about the sort of connection between the metropole and the Algerian colony in these early decades. Um, the truth is, I think we have to admit that a lot of it is imaginary. Um, that Algeria does become. So you're talking about. Um, Algeria as a space where some of these debates and some of these questions about religion in the public square do get sort of exported in ways that I describe in the book and debates. Can we have public religious processions? Can we proselytize? Right. Um, and so, so occasionally scandals do boil up in Algeria to the point where they even are talked about, as you know, back in, in France, in the press and in the, and in the, and in the assembly. Right. But a lot of times, the figures that I look at, look at in those opening chapters are mainly engaged in, in, in projection, right? They're sort of imagining Algeria as this um, utopian space where they can sort of experiment, but it's in their own minds, right? With, with what they'd like to see France or the future of France and Algeria looking like. And a lot of people did this, not just, not just right-wing Catholics, right? There's a, a moment of sort of utopic, <laughs> um, lots of pamphlet writing, I think, where everybody's saying, well, we should deport people there. Well, we should send, you know, um, disadvantaged people there. Later on, we should send, you know, dispossessed Alsatians there, right? We should, we should send orphans there, um, you know, all kinds of plans. We should send veterans there. We should, we should, uh, I think Jennifer Sessions talks about this, right? Um, the idea that, um, that, you know, it's kind of like Roman latifundia or something like once our veterans have like fought, they could, they could, they could receive, they could receive land grants there. Uh, and so lots of people use Algeria in this sort of, uh, in this sort of blank screen way to talk through, what they'd like France to be like and what they'd like France's values to be like in the 1840s, in this early period, 1850s. On my topic, on the stuff about religion, uh, you know, the people like Voyot who are so committed to like, we should be, we should be really aggressively promoting Catholicism and, and, and not caring at all about promises to tolerate the Muslim faith that we made, right? We should be converting people. Um, you know, this too is mostly imaginary, right? <laughs> Very few, very few um, the existing scholarly consensus that I discussed that talks about how very few Catholic clergymen and, 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 and clergywomen really tried to, to evangelize or missionize Muslim Algerians. That, that, as a generalization, that's true. And I, and I talk about that. So, so most of this is imaginary. 
Um, but occasionally those debates do, as I said, blow back to France or the French press and become scandals there. And at those points, um, everyone back in France, except for the ultramontane Catholics, you know, they're all saying, well, of course we tolerate, of course, pragmatically, we would not want to in, in provoke um, insurrection or anger amongst our, 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 uh, our uh, Muslim Algerian populations here. And so um, those debates do happen, but you can tell people feel that they should be respecting French ideals of tolerance and non-proselytization for the most part. So what um, are the debates in France at this point, sort of about the role of religion in public life? Um, as you, I think you call them culture wars, which I think is a really uh, provocative description of what was happening in terms of how religion was understood as being part of public life or not part of public life in the sort of transitionary moment in French history. The, the really big one in the 1840s, that is the, the main backdrop for um, people like Voyot's anger about the, the July monarchy's supposed lack of support. This is not even true. There was plenty of support for the Catholic institutional Catholic Church in Algeria, as other scholars have shown. Uh, many, many mosques uh, uh, appropriated and turned into churches. Uh, the, the, the things that Voyot is complaining about are, are not even... You know, he's complaining that the July monarchy in the 1840s is not su supporting Catholicism sufficiently. And that's not even true, right, for the most part. Um, but for him, anger comes from mainly the question about um, uh, education, right? So um, when, the, when the restored monarchies came back after Napoleon, they... As in so many, as in so many things, they kind of liked centralizing legacy, right? And so they hold on to control of the university and things like that. And the um, Jesuits, for example, are still uh, uh, people are very suspicious of Jesuits in education and are not allowed into public schools and things like that. And so that is that is a cause clergymen in schools, just like it will be in the 1880s. I think that is the main thing that a lot of people are sort of both liberal and conservative Catholics feel that this should be allowed that, that um, clergymen should be allowed into, into public schools, right? And so that's a big one. And then there, I mean, um, uh, there are constant debates about, um, under the July Monarchy, there's a wonderful book that came out a few years ago by um, Tom Kesselman uh, um, at Notre Dame. And, and um, he talks in there about how the July Monarchy even you know, at moments when priests would try to come in and convert someone on their deathbed and things like these, these would become scandals. And so priests in hospitals, <laughs> priests pressuring people, uh, you know, maybe, maybe the, it's a person who had already asked to die without last rites, but their parent or their child or their spouse has insisted. And so now you have a situation where the, the government is having to get involved in these very personal uh, matters and, and then sort of police these matters because they are trying to, to, to be more liberal and portray themselves as not as as a theocratic as the previous regime of Charles X, right? And so, so th those are those are the things that really anger people like Vio, I would say, the, the place of priests in schools and in hospitals, things like that. Right, right, right. Which is maybe what, then where you see the sort of impetus towards creating educational opportunities, schools, orphanages, these kinds of things amongst um, Catholics in Algeria, right? In that that period. Right, right, and so yeah, so exactly right. So then the criticism would be and people at the time sort of free thinkers and, 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 and anti-clericals at the time made this accusation you're just going to algeria to i think as one as one military officer said it sort of sharpened the dull blade in the sand you know sharpen the dull blade of, of catholicism or whatever in the sand of algeria you're just hoping to um or as historian uh, claude prudhomme i just paraphrase to, to, to recreate that that christian utopia over there i can't remember the exact 
imagination. Um, so yeah, exactly right. So the idea that somehow the colony could be a space where you could recreate a, a religious France that is now um, back in metropolitan France is already sort of decadent and lost to God here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So maybe to move from, from the space of abstract utopia to, to very concrete cases of um, missionaries actually sort of interacting with indigenous Algerians, but also potentially maybe temporarily having some success in converting them. The, the realism of this is, is maybe up, up for debate. Um, so you, you then sort of move from France to Algeria and take us through the story of how Jesuit missionaries attempt to sort of expand their influence um, in the early decades of colonization, um, periodically kind of negotiating with or fighting with the military administration to get increased sort of uh, opportunities for contact um, and finding creative ways to, to sort of develop their relationships with the indigenous population of Algeria. Um, and in chapter three in particular, you introduce us to two really fascinating people, um, the Kuja brothers, is that right, roughly? The pronunciation? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so, pardon? Uh, yeah, I would say okay. Khoja, yeah. Okay. Um, there's different there's some different spellings in the archives and then, and then the state gave them a, a spelling. So okay. Right. Always a little complicated. Um, so their story sort of helps you get at right. This challenge that missionization presented right to Catholics, but Jesuits in particular, the kind of conservative Catholics um, early on. And then their, their relationship to Algerian Muslims and to the French state. So do you want to tell us sort of who these brothers are and what their, their story is? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so really, um, there, there was a, there were a number of, so when, when the Jesuits were given the missionary post, actually they were given, um, because the, the Bishop of Algiers at the time was a guy named Pavi and he was, um, short staffed or shorthanded as I think I describe it in the book. And so, uh, he was even using the Jesuits who are, um, of course, regular clergy or members of a rule and don't normally serve as, as parish clergymen, right? He was even using them as his parish clergymen in the Eastern capital city of Constantine. And so here in a space where there was hardly any European population to speak of in the 1840s and 50s and even 60s, um, in a case where normally, as the, as the historiographical consensus goes, uh, missionaries were not trying to convert Muslim Algerians here, it was a natural thing to think of converting um, uh, Muslims. And of course, the Jesuits sort of saw themselves as, as specialists in missions too. And so it was it was an unavoidable question here in Constantine, which is where I, I kind of settle in chapters two and three in a more micro-historical way, right? To talk about the Jesuits and their attempts in this one city. And the, I think a handful of Arab youths that they had coming to their to their missionary outpost to their to their chapel and then eventually these two brothers who become i think i described it their star converts and they teach they they, they they catechize them they baptize them they have their parents or their uncle i think sign a sign a, a certificate that says they were given permission to be baptized they take them to france two different times these two brothers louis and stanislas um their their names were, were germi and mouloud but they were they were i think i'm getting them in the correct order here I should double check, but um, the older brother, Louis, and then Stanislas, uh, they were christened, uh, these Christian names, after two youths who had become Jesuits. And so um, sort of famous Jesuit saints, Louis and Stanislas. And so the Jesuits are very excited about these two. Um, one of the missionaries calls them the first fruits, the first fruits of the Arab mission, the first fruits of, of a prayer association that this missionary had, had founded 
that had tens of thousands of members who promised to pray for the conversion of Muslims. And he says, these two brothers were our first fruits and they put a lot of hope in these brothers. And then long story short, um, they end up coming home by the end of the 1860s and their family has them circum circumcised, which, um, which at that time the, the, the missionaries interpreted as, as rejecting Christianity, as, as going through with, a, with an Islamic ritual there. Uh, and, the, and the missionaries were very, very bitter about this and began to say very negative things about the entire Arab race by, by the 1870s. And so, um, yeah, this story to me is, is, the story, is at the heart of the book. And if, if, if anybody just wants to read one chapter, it's, not even, it's one of the shortest. I think it may be the shortest or second shortest chapter. And yet it's the one that I'm most passionate about. It's the most story driven. It's the one that took me the longest to reconstruct, right? Uh, you know, a year of my life, maybe, <laughs> to you know, find all the documents that I could, as best I could, about these two brothers. And then I can tell you more about sort of the archival story of this if you want. But um, then to come to the end, and, and, and after doing some searching, to find out that the older brother, um, uh, Louis Hoja, he was the same guy that the Jesuits had catechized, the same guy who wrote this amazing pamphlet in the 1890s. Uh, that other historians had mentioned, uh, one of, if, if not the first, young Algerian, if you will, right? And to realize what I think no one else had known was that, 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 that these experiences he describes in that pamphlet about what it feels like to be an Arab child who even travels to France for your education and then feels alienation and is not in, does, receives no advancement or career in return, to realize that he was describing his own experiences with the Jesuits and others. Um, I mean, I know we're not supposed to say that, that historians discover anything anymore and <laughs> it's like hubristic or something, but, but that was one of those discoveries that like, even if I told no other story in this book, I had to tell the, the complicated story of these, of these two brothers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's such a powerful story and it's so, it's so compelling to sort of watch how that personal tale, right? How those personal experiences sort of are, are uncovered through the archival work that you've done. Um, but then also how Louis is really trying to thread the needle of these complex debates himself, right? He's not sort of letting um, the other figures talk for him, but is, is himself publishing a pamphlet about how do we, you know, blend French modernity and universalism with the particular needs of Algerian uh, Muslim populations in Algeria? How do we how do we figure that out? He's really proposing a solution in a way that the French don't necessarily listen to, but he's, he's really trying here to sort of use that experience and use that background to make a compelling argument, which I think is just a fascinating story. Um, so yeah, I wonder if maybe you would get into the, the archival sort of process here. I think it's a great opportunity to think here of how you found them in the archives and sort of what what the process of tra tracking down the story looked like yeah i mean thank you honestly it was an extraordinary stroke of luck <laughs> um when i first arrived at the archives of the jesuits uh, south of, of paris in Vanves, um as a phd candidate and then later on i i went to the the headquarters in rome but but these these stories were mainly at the the jesuits in france archive uh, just south of Paris, I was a PhD candidate, and 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 one of my committee members, or maybe not even a candidate yet, I don't remember. <laughs> one of my committee members had suggested that the that the Jesuits might have something on missions in Algeria, and an archivist at that time, a very kind gentleman by the name of Father Robert Robert Bonfils, uh, told me that they had only recently received a shipment of archives from the Jesuit station in Constantine, 
which uh, included DR after DR, so daybook diaries. Uh, they have to keep for when their superiors visit just to show what they did every day, right? Uh, just in, sometimes incredibly mundane detail entries, right? Uh, but they included all the diaries and the notes and the beautiful sketches that you, that you see just a, a fraction of in the book of the pair Henri Ducat uh, that you see in that book. And I, I don't know whether anyone had looked through these before I did. Um, now, one of the only things that I know of that had been written about Jesuit missions to Muslims in Algeria before this was a classic article now that told the story of how a different Jesuit by the name of Clozat, Jean-Baptiste Clozat, I think was his name. He had been in the mountains of Kabylie in the 1860s, and he had not been a very effective missionary. He had been rejected and embarrassed by his potential converts. And as the story goes, they tricked him into sitting directly in, in, a, in a seat that had been uh, you know, placed excrement on it, right? And so just, just a symbolic humiliation, as I described it. And this story of this missionary who sat in shit right, has been cited or alluded to by multiple historians, just a shorthand for how, for how uninterested Muslim Algerians were in talking to, to, to missionaries and how inept or tactless the missionaries were. But Clozat's diaries were at, at the archive, right? So this was the first thing I did. Only, only having heard that story, and knowing that it was like an interesting story, right? And not knowing what Koza's side of the story was, I spent days looking through, you know, around the time period that this supposedly happened, entry by mundane entry. Just spent days at the archive trying to find out whether this guy had actually sit in, sat in shit or not, right? And so long story short, it's actually not clear whether he did. Right? Hmm. And, not what you're expecting to debunk really with this project, but... Super, super important work here. Very, uh, very relevant. But the embarrassing story actually got told by a rival colonial officer who had his own interests in sort of embarrassing this missionary and promoting his own expertise, his own, his own position as the only one qualified to sort of liaise with Algeria's Muslim population. So the missionary diary proved actually a really rich source here where it enabled me to like triangulate this whole situation. And I ended up using that material, not in this book, but I wrote an article but because you can't spend that much time re <laughs> reconstructing a story and then, and then not feel close to it and want to write something about it. So there's an article about that whole story um, in the journal of modern history, right on honor excrement ethnography, I called it. And then there's a subtitle, but anyway, I also had Dukas diaries. And I'm starting to see the richness of these stories. And this Dukkha is the is the is the missionary, as you know, that was most interested in Muslim missions in the 1860s in Constantine, and that really saw himself as the as the mentor of these two brothers. And his extensive notes on the prayer association that he founded, and his beautiful sketches of Algerian youths. And so those ended up being the basis of of how I reconstructed that story, what I consider the heart of the book, the micro history that it took me a long time to reconstruct how these two brothers, Louis and Stanislas Hoja, sometimes sometime converts, but then but then renegades, quote unquote, from, from, from the Catholic faith, as the missionaries would see it. You know, missionary diaries are an interesting source because today the commandant's wife came over to practice the organ, right? Today, such and such a, a friend, you know, came to coffee. Today, we went for a walk in the neighborhood. It's it, it, seriously, seemingly unimportant stuff, right? But if you keep at it, you start to see certain names recur. You start to see more interesting entries. The Arab children stayed over tonight for Christmas Eve, right? Um, and so again, you can—it's—you it, don't have the whole story, right? But it can be really rich and, and rewarding if you're patient.
and then to see, to, as I said before, to see that older brother tell his obliquely tell his side of the story in this published pamphlet, I I, I knew that I needed to tell that story. Yeah, no, it's really fascinating. Um, no, and I, I think I think Zuka's story here was also really interesting. I think it's maybe reflective as well of something they do um, quite well in the book, which is sort of incorporate this it's like thousand foot view, right? A big picture, the entirety of French. Algeria, the debates about French religion, all these kind of really large geographical, temporal, cultural processes with very on the ground, personal, individual stories. And, and um, you sort of attribute in many ways, at least some of the changes in attitudes um, around the nature of Islam, the sort of convertibility, if you will, of Algerian Muslims to personal failures, right? And real personal experiences. Um, and I think this this is sort of what you suggest is the case for Zucara is once it becomes clear to him that the brothers are not you know, going to remain converts. He feels this really deep sense of personal betrayal, right? A really sort of sense of abandonment um, and, and some sort of anger it would appear from your description. So I'm wondering sort of how you, how you tried to balance those two perspectives um, and how you see maybe that more emotional or personal side of things um, playing into the story that you're telling here. Yeah. Yeah. That... <laughs> That's a that's a, a great question. That's a big question. Um, I guess I would just say that that for me, I, I would like to act like there's some brilliant theoretical justification. For <laughs> but sometimes it's retroactive, right? Sometimes you find the things you find, and sometimes you're interested in the things that you're interested, in, and then you write the conclusion last, right? Um, I I want I, I want to map out the room, the structure, the the, the culture, or the discursive space. The, the, the 20,000 feet or whatever that, that we're swimming in. Yes, I want to be good at that side of it um, to set the context for the story. But that's not actually where my, probably where my strengths as a historian or my passion is. I, once I have set that context, I, I have nothing but respect for historians who are really good at just comprehensively capturing the structure, just, just describing everything that's in the room, you know, before the action, before the drama begins, right? And that takes an extraordinary amount of skill. But I have always been partial to the story. I've always been, I don't know if it's temperamental, but a truffle hunter, right? Rather than a parachutist, as the, as the saying goes. And I think when you are doing something that smacks of, of microhistory, of course, you do sacrifice breadth and, and representativity, whatever that means, right? Um, so we know that, for example, Dukas' writings, we know that the Annals. We know that the Association for the Propagation of the Faith had a huge distribution, right? As Jacob Dalton has 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 detailed. Um, but I don't do any kind of reception study of that, right? So I can't. I can't again. Can't make definitive claims as to Dukas single-handedly shifting the dial here. But that's not. There, there are other figures in the in the story, of course. So I'm, I'm sacrificing that kind of, of of comprehensiveness and representativity. But what I'm gaining, of course, is, is depth and and insight into those personal and human and contingent sides. And I feel like for the story that I want to tell, that's, you have to do that. Because if, if what you're interested in are the real choices and the options that people faced on both sides, the moral complexity of, of the, of the, um, the catechumens, the, 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 the disciples here, um, sometime convert, you know, uh, uh, momentary converts here, uh, Louis and Stanislaus and some of the other young men from Constantine, how do you capture a situation where, you know, maybe this person was really attracted to Christianity, 
right? Maybe this person wasn't, you know, a perfect, you know, 21st century decolonizer, right? Maybe in the horizon of this person's expectations, there was something attractive about French power or about French education, or there was some way that Christianity and Islam could be harmonized, right? How do you, but then eventually deciding that that was a, a bridge too far of personal education and then deciding that, of course, he was going to stay in the culture of his family, whatever else he was going to do, right? How do you capture the complexity of and the contingency of a situation like that without just narrating it, right? And then, as you say, on, on Dukas' side or on the missionary side, uh, and then the, the later missionaries I talk about, the white fathers, how do you capture the the complexity, the, the the nuance of a situation where missionaries are engaging in something that we would we would term and others um, uh, cultural genocide today, right? Sort of taking children who maybe whose family is still alive and, and claiming that they're orphans and keeping them and baptizing them, right? But then at the same time, some of these missionaries are sort of sacrificing their lives or dying of the same disease as they care for these children, right? So, like that, this is a this is a complex situation, right? And I, I know of, of no way to, to capture that. Um, to, to what's, what is horrible about that and what is human about that, uh, short of just narrating it, right? And so uh, for, for me, it, ha- it had to be, I guess, it had to be the, the truffles. It had to be, the, the, it had to be microscopic here. And then the other thing is, I know we're academics and I know like the chances of this being read by people who aren't interested in, in, in French imperialism or, or, or French Catholicism is slim. But for me, of course, I would, I would love it if someone who was just interested in, in Muslim Christian dialogue or just interested in, you know, in, in, in knowing more about the history of the way Muslims have been treated in France or in other predominantly Christian spaces here, or the colonialist origins of that, someone who is, is not necessarily already the audience for this. I would like this to be accessible for a person like that. And so I, I wrote it that, that way, I think, on purpose, because to me, that's also an issue of access and, and, and democracy. Right? <laughs> uh, here I am sort of retroactively making it sound more, more noble than maybe it was. But um, uh, I had to make it story driven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for something, you know, it strikes me that for something as at least potentially personal as faith, right? Obviously, faith can have all these other kind of practical, political, social contingencies to it. But for something that is at least potentially quite personal, it makes a lot of sense, right? To tell this in a very personal kind of intimate one-on-one kind of way, right? That story-driven arc makes a lot of sense for attempting to explain something that in many ways feels unexplainable through only structural discussions, right? Only kind of big picture, cultural, logical explanations. And there it is. There you just, you just explained it better than I, <laughs> I should have said that. <laughs> um, so maybe to, to, keep zooming out a little bit the the sort of second half of the book as you're moving towards more liberal catholicism and the kind of evolution of this takes us to ottoman syria um in the 1860s um which i think i wasn't necessarily expecting in the story about france and algeria um so i'm wondering maybe if you can just sort of talk us through how it was that internecine violence in syria sort of brought this uh what is it, the the de um to prominence and sort of what role that plays in Algeria, right? Why is this kind of relevant to the story? Yeah, yeah. I think I, I describe it in the intro as like a detour or something like that. Um, I, 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 I workshopped different titles to make it clear that there, that this was going to be about the sort of French Catholic Mediterranean, mm-hmm. not just. It was not an unpleasant surprise, to be fair. No, but it just, I just could, I couldn't capture everything in the title, you know. <laughs> um, and I have, I still have questions about the title, of course, as I'm sure everyone does, but. Um, about their own about their own titles but you can't you can't possibly say everything that it's going to be but there was a, there was a detour 
hopefully not not too abrupt. But I, I think I think the the biggest reason that I can claim that these spaces were related, uh, French Algeria and Ottoman Syria, for lack of better, you know, just shorthand here, related at least in the minds of metropolitan French Catholic observers, is that they said they were related, right? I mean, as you saw in those chapters, Catholic observers of the massacres, the so-called massacres of Syria in 1860, especially the liberal Catholic Marquis de Vaugouet, right? They, they not only like implied, they even explicitly said that those massacres were part of a pan-Islamic plot against Christianity that stretched from Constantinople to Mecca to Africa. Vaugouet even brings up the French colony in Algeria, doesn't he? He suggests that anti-colonial resistance there was in a similar way to what was happening in Syria must be taking its orders from some sort of, uh, what does he call it? Um, uh, some mysterious offshoots or mysterious networks, I think is the, I forget the quotation, but some, some kind of nefarious pan-Islamic network that is connecting Algeria and Syria and Mecca and Constantinople. And, and indeed, one of my like main arguments in those chapters is that, is that from the reductive perspective back in metropolitan France, these were both part of the so-called Muslim world, right? So, somewhat interchangeable in terms of how they should be treated. And people talk, people make kind of ethnographic comparisons, don't they? They say, oh, you know what? The Maronites, this sort of, um, this sort of uh, embattled Christian minority in Ottoman Syria, they are like the Kabyles who will be our little sort of civilized Christian minority if we can get them to convert, you know, people make those kind of analogies. Oh, we could even just transplant Maronites into Algeria because they're basically uh, Arab Christians here. And we'd have like a, a population that's already indigenous and acclimated, but it's already Christian. There's a historian has written about that scheme, right? To transplant Maronites to Algeria. And so they're treated in as analogous or even as interchangeable when these kinds of ethnographic comparisons are being made. And then there's also the concern that they're connected through these pan-Islamic networks. And then you also don't just have these kinds of comparisons or connections by the Catholics who are afraid of Islamic unity, quote unquote, but you also have striking comments by people who are worried about this reductivism, right? To, to me, one of the most powerful uh, discoveries or one of the most powerful things at the end of that chapter is when Ismail Urbain, right, the, the, the famous advocate of more, of more Arabophile, quote unquote, policies, the guy who was saying we should be more respectful of Muslim consciences in Algeria, that he explicitly says, please, please stop making these associations between Syria and Algeria. Stop printing all kinds of Islamophobic nonsense about Ottoman Syria because it will feed into those who want to treat Muslim Algerians more harshly and want to, re and, and, and want to just say, anytime we're met with resistance, it's not because we did anything wrong. It's not for like social or political or colonial reasons. It's just irrational jihad, right? Like this, this guy writing in 1860, he, he makes that argument. He calls that out. He says, don't reduce it to Islam. That's, that's nonsense, right? You know, reasons why people resist us in Algeria and don't act like it's taking orders from the Ottomans or something. And so people at the time made these comparisons, both people for and people against. Um, and so that's, I mean, I, that is my justification for, 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 for holding them in the same frame of analysis. But then it's not just imaginary either, isn't it, right? Because as the later chapters show, the people who end up sort of in charge of the institutional church in and, and sort of Muslim missions in colonial Algeria are all people who got their spurs in that fundraising campaign in Syria, right? Bishop Lavigerie, right? Charles Lavigerie, his entourage, those fundraising networks, they got their start with that charitable campaign. They 
claim. They even say like, this is, this is why I know so much about Islam. This is why I'm now like a specialist in, <laughs> in like Muslim relations or Muslim missions. Cause I went to Syria and said all this Islamophobic stuff. And then they, they'd supposedly learned all these negative things. And now they know how to treat Islam in Algeria. Right. So I think the events in Ottoman Syria, um, are a vital detour to understand the, the story of a French Catholic engagement with Islam in this period, yet not least because both on the sort of um, constructed level, the imaginary level, people were making that association and blaming Islam everywhere for this, uh, but also because the actual, just materially and physically, the, the actual personnel, the actual people staffed both of those things at one time, right? Right, right, but, right, the substantial overlap. Yeah, so I think one thing that, that that story does in a lot of ways is um, maybe one of the arguments that I see as, as most compelling and most really interesting for me about the book is the relationship between some of these categories of kind of early colonialism that we usually see as secular, right, as part of the kind of Third Republic's secular colonial mission, whether it be the civilizing mission or this kind of colonial ethnography invention of race um, in the French Empire, and really interjecting quite an important role for Catholics, right, for religion in developing what is often seen as kind of secular categories. Um, so how do you, how do you understand that as part of your argument? And maybe how do you, how do you think that incorporating a maybe religious genealogy into these categories changes how we should understand, say, the civilizing mission of colonial ethnography? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, colonial ethnography. Uh, for, for me, like a key reference here would be, um, Edmund Burke the third has written so much about colonial ethnography, I think more in the Moroccan context and what he calls the, the sociology of Islam. Right. And he, and people like, um, uh, um, Julia Clancy Smith, right. Have, have, have written about, um, uh, Patricia Lorsan, right. Have written about these officers, for example, who are the first colonial ethnographers and how this is a lot of times folks who were military officers who were, obviously sort of interested observers, right? And so someone like Edmund Burke III, I think he, he makes a distinction, if I recall correctly, between like academic Orientalism, which is in the armchair, quote unquote, as it, you know, it is back in, in, uh, in Paris or at the Sorbonne or something, giving speeches, Ernest Renan, this kind of stuff, and then colonial ethnographers who have pretensions to, to, to break into that, that academic respectability, but are clearly doing something that's much more um, obviously instrumental, right? Because they are... Uh, trying to manage and quote unquote pacify colonial populations, and that's the reason for their their their, their gathering knowledge, right? And and so for me, um, taking seriously the possibility that some of those first colonial ethnographers, I mean, on on the one hand, I talk more about this in the article that's in the Journal of Modern History, but on the one hand, we could just uh, expand the periodization a little bit and just point out that some of the first colonial ethnographers ever, if we're talking about like um, Jesuit letters from the new world or something, quote unquote, or from, uh, from, from, from uh, the Cape of India. Um, these are some of the first colonial ethnographers in the early modern period. And these are some of the ways that the enlightenment, for example, first found out about the rest of the world was through missionary letters, right? So missionary letters are actually a very old ethnographic genre, aren't they? Uh, but in the 19th century, the late 19th century, for me to insist that some of those ethnographers were not just military officers, but people who were engaged in that older tradition of what we would, we would consider Christian apologetics, that there's overlap between those things. Um, I mean, to me, one of the, the, the takeaways of that is that it, it further, further problematizes that tradition. Right? So on the one hand, okay, 
we have sources from the 19th century, which are sometimes our only sources on what uh, the life of this, this, this people group, for example, was like, but it's a source that's incredibly biased, was written by a military official or something. Maybe we have sources that were written by a missionary that are biased for a different reason, right? Uh, and so the ways that you would read those and triangulate between those is different. And both of those should be problematized and both of those um, are filled with their own kinds of bias. One is trying to prove Christianity right. And the other is trying to <laughs> divide and rule, right? Um, but in, 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 in reading both of them between the lines, uh, uh, you see, you, you get more than you would with just one of those things, right? But, but, but some, there's a couple other reasons why I think this is important to talk about how some of that ethnography was being produced by people with, with pretty clear, uh, religious incentives with the desire, religious apologetics, right? The desire not just to divide and rule, but also the, the desire to prove Islam wrong or to prove Christianity right, right? That's the apologetic uh, motive. If you take that religious side, that, that people of faith have a sort of investment in feeling like their faith is the right one, right? And so that they have to have reasons why, explanations why someone rejected their religion, right? Uh, and so uh, this is something that people of faith often do. Right, is engage in these kinds of apologetics and sort of justifications for why someone else was not able to immediately understand why why Christianity is superior. Well, then you have to have an explanation for that, as I discuss. So, why is it important that some of these ethnographers were also Catholics, were also engaging in religious apologetics? Um, it also shows and engaging in the civilizing mission rhetoric. One of the things I want to show in the book is just how diverse and plural the just taking it just french catholic sphere right so back in metropolitan france you have different there's not one catholic orientalism there's not one catholic kind of ethnography there's conservative there's liberal so even just as a historian of french catholicism i want to insist on the contestation and the flux even just within that group okay but then to me the the biggest thing is and i i, I discuss this in the book and in the intro i think throughout the book but once you get to algeria once you get to the colonial space what i want to insist on is again that contestation but for a different reason not not to point out how like modern and contested and and and, and diverse catholics were back in france but in the colonial context i think as they call it um for me the contestation is especially important to insist on that there were secular ethnographers there were catholic ethnographers and everything in between right Secular invokers of the civilizing mission, Catholic invokers of that discourse, everything in between. Because that contestation, as other scholars have argued, uh, created, I'm thinking of Frederick Cooper here, talks about the fissures that were created, right? When different nodes of power uh, sort of compete with each other, and that those themselves, those, there's not just one French modernity here, those fissures create spaces uh, in which colonized people can can agitate and negotiate and navigate and so it's pitting pitting one representative of french power against another right uh, choosing to ally and to align yourself with the missionary or choosing to align yourself with the colonial officer right? choosing which scripts as one scholar called it uh to learn uh as 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 you as a colonized person are are, are doing your best to appropriate and, and 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 choose and resist what there is on offer from 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 french colonialism that contestation is, is, is significant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that maybe brings us to, um, to a second, quite different example of, um, 
Catholic education attempts in Algeria, um, right in the 1870s and 1880s under the, the Père Blain, under Charles de Vigerie, um, the Archbishop of Algiers from 68, I think. Um, so I'm wondering if maybe you might talk a little bit about sort of what's different about the White Fathers' approach um, with regards to sort of how they interact with Algerian Muslims um, and sort of their relationship to, to these missionization efforts in comparison to what we talked about previously with, say, Atiqa and some of the Jesuit um, efforts. Yeah, so one one of the the big overarching narratives, I think to use your phrase, of the book is that you had these Jesuit attempts in the 1850s and 60s, right, to convert Muslim youths. And in some ways, they were sort of very aggressive because they would openly discuss you know, religious differences. They would say, well, here's why Islam is wrong, you know, or here's why, you know, not always as diplomatic as, as, as they should be, right, as we would think, right. And at the same time, those those Jesuit missionaries, I argue in the book, were more open to cultural accommodation from the Jesuit tradition of accommodatio, right? Uh, that they would take meals with with their um, with their proteges, and they were they were happy to uh, try to foreground what was valuable about Algerian culture, right? And then I try to make the argument that by the time La Vigerie and the missionary congregation that he founds, the White Fathers, the Père Blanc, uh, by the time that they're on the scene. Um, they are more inspired by this sort of liberal mainstream argument that they should not openly offend Muslims, right? And so we would say it's a little bit more liberal, a little bit more, uh, a little more tact, right? Um, and Lavigerie even puts a ban on open proselytization. He like punishes, I'm going to talk about this in the book, he punishes his priests who he finds out are openly trying to get um, uh, Muslim Algerians to convert or be baptized. Very counterintuitive, not what you would assume yeah. would be the case amongst missionaries. Right, because he's got lots of projects going, he's trying to earn funding from the state, uh, and he doesn't he doesn't want to be accused of anything embarrassing, especially after he had taken all those children in the orphanages of 1868. Um, and there had been scandals, right, about supposedly he was baptizing these children without their own consent or the consent of their of their families. And there is, there's evidence in the archives that he was doing that, although he insists he only ever did that if a child was on the point of death, right? Um, and so he's got that scandal behind him, and then he's trying to avoid scandal, right? And the sort of, again, counterintuitive, I'm overusing this word probably, but the counterintuitive argument I make is that even though after that, he puts this ban on proselytization, he, 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 um, claims to be more respectful of Muslim faith in his fundraising materials. And again, we see in the way that he treats some of those children that he quote unquote adopted, we see a more racialized approach by the 1870s and 80s and 90s, right? Um, and so that's one of the arguments that I make that like, you know what, actually um, saying that like, it would be dangerous to try to convert these people that too, we could see how that would go in a productive direction if you finally realize, okay, maybe we shouldn't be trying to convert everybody, right? We can see how that's sort of a step in a, in a, in a progressive direction, perhaps. And maybe it was ultimately. Maybe eventually because of that ban on proselytization. I mean, the White Fathers today, they're sort of like, there's an office, I think, in the you know in Rome where this is staffed in part by White Fathers and other other. Um, other clergy who have who have um, experience in in the so-called Muslim world and are advocates of dialogue now, right? So there has been progress, right? Um, and so maybe this was the first step, right? But at the time, the reason why Lavishli was doing it 
I argue, uh, was not out of respect for Islam, but out of out of suspicion. Right. Mm-hmm. No, that's really interesting. No, I, I think I looked it up at some point. There's maybe like fourteen hundred white fathers that are still sort of operative around the world. It would appear, but I wouldn't have known. Um, yeah. There's an office for them in Montreal. I stumbled upon it at some point and realized I was like, oh, this is a thing I should look up actually. Um, so it's still very relevant. His name escapes me at the moment, but I think um, one of the people who was instrumental uh, in in some of the language that ended up in, in Vatican II. It's much more respectful both to people of Jewish faith and to people of Muslim faith, I think, was a white father. And so I think I, I mentioned this in the end of the book, I think, but I think nowadays, or maybe it was just in a footnote, <laughs> nowadays the, the Père Blanc are known as advocates of, of Muslim Christian dialogue, right? Um, and so it's an interesting reversal and something that, that I have to reckon with. But I, I, don't, I don't think that this first step was done out of the goodness of, of, of La Vigerie's heart. Right, right. It was not done intending for that to be the consequence necessarily. I think he was avoiding scandal. And I think, as I argue in the book, um, he really had a, a more rigidly racialized view of the, of, of, of the capacity of, of, of people of Muslim faith to, to become civilized, quote unquote, than, than the Jesuits before him had had. They had been more optimistic, I argue. Right. Yeah, so maybe this discussion of the White Fathers um, today can kind of bring us to a a reflection that you make sort of in conclusion. So I, I think one thing that's really powerful about this book, um, if you're interested for reasons other than just 19th century French and Algeria, which is a very good reason to read the book, and I think it's really great <laughs> for that, um, is I think it is a really good tool to kind of think in new ways about the relationship, right, between the French state, laicity, universalism, Catholicism, right, these things that are still very much sort of um, contemporarily relevant in, in France, but also in the US. Um, so I'm wondering maybe how you see this story mapping onto contemporary French understandings of religion, of race, of secularism, um, sort of how it might help us understand left-wing and left-wing and secular or right-wing sort of interpretations of Islam, which is a, something you sort of addressed in the, the epilogue or the conclusion that I think was really, really fascinating and maybe worth um, hearing you talk about for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, of course, it, it, it's one of those things, right? Where and I, I'm, I'm cautious in the epilogue. I hope because it's one of those things where we all want to act like our our work does have present day implications, and I think mine does, right? Uh, but of course, you can't jump from 1892 or whatever. To, Something else happens in the middle. I don't think it's just straight to present. Right yeah, yeah. As I say in the epilogue, there are plenty of more um, direct causes for for, for the current um, tensions, right? That we could trace um, uh, uh, the Algerian War and the, and, and the bad. Uh, blood and, and uh, of what was done there to to, to France's um, Muslim populations, right? Um, post-colonial migration patterns, and, and and then austerity politics today, right? Um, so we don't need the 19th century necessarily to understand what's going wrong today. But I do think there are some 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 really important implications of of what I'm doing, and some that other people have made before. But um, on one level, I mean, I think my work just shows again, how contingent and colonialist and religious the origins are of some of the negative stereotypes of Muslims and people of Muslim faith today, right? And so that why those, as I say in the book, those, those stereotypes should be abandoned if they have their origins in the colonialist justification of violence and dispossession. Um, so that's, that's one obvious takeaway, right? But also, I, I think you, you mentioned this maybe, but, um, also, I think the book shows that there were other possible futures, right? It didn't have to be this way, as people say. Um, ones where religious minorities are treated with respect, 
given space in which to practice, right? And, um, you know, the story of, of Louis Hoja and, and who had asked for, for what later comes to be called, what, citizenship with personal status? Like this was a possibility, right? As other scholars have argued, as, as, as um, Frederick Cooper and others have argued, this was something that, that was given to the original, uh, so-called original um, citizens of the commune, the, of the four communes in, in Dakar and Senegal, right? But it, it, it's actually not true that the French state and the French colonial state always denied citizenship to people that still had access to Muslim personal law and polygamy, right? That's, that's the pretext in Algeria, and that was always denied on that pretext, right? Uh, but citizenship, while, main, while, while retaining personal status law, Muslim personal status law, that was suggested and asked for right, by young Algerians later on. And that is it's not actually true, that that has always been inconsistent with Republican universalism, right? Uh, it was never really offered in Algeria until too late, right? So other other futures, right, where... where, where um, as I think you put it elsewhere, that um, that would integrate Muslim difference into Republican universalism. Other other takeaways, I think I see two others at least. But um, if we're thinking about the the present day um, tensions uh, and the ways in which people of Muslim faith are treated and are aggressively targeted by this like really um, violent rhetoric of laicite, right? Oh no, France has always been secular and we're, we're just being fair. We're just holding you to the same standard we've held everybody else to, right? Well, like other scholars have shown before me, like Priscilla Saidi, like Judith Circus, I hope that my work shows that the idea that the French state has always been secular and is just sort of sincerely and consistently applying secularism to the colonies and therefore it's just being fair and consistent when it, when it weaponizes laicite against Muslim minorities today, that this history of like pure, consistent Republican secularism, equal treatment to all religious minorities, that, that's a myth, right? Clearly the French state in colonial contexts, but also in metropolitan France, in Alsace-Lorraine, right? The French state, others have argued, the French state was always okay with supporting, continuing to prop up religious institutions, even after 1905, laws, traditional elites. But then there's the dark side, right? I think my work dovetails, I hope, with... Judith Circus's brilliant work that shows that this tolerance itself, this, this statist uh, propping up of Islamic institutions um, was in the interest of imperial control and was just a sop, right? It was a, a compensatory, I think is, is Judith Circus's word for all kinds of violence and intolerance. So it's interesting because this is something the fact that like French tolerance, quote unquote, for Islam is something that was ongoing even after 1905 and institutional propping up and of certain Muslim elites and certain Muslim institutions. Again, this is something that like the Catholics I study kind of dimly recognized, right? For, for their own personal reasons, right? They were like mad at this tolerance, right? They wanted to get at, to get at the possibility of converting these people, right? But they recognized that this tolerance was, was a sop and that the people who claimed to tolerate Islam more than they did we're also doing a lot of violence against Muslims, right? So they, they, they recognize that discourse that I think Judith Circus analyzes brilliantly. The Catholics I studied saw that, but they saw it for, for, for self-interested reasons, right? And had, had their own violent designs on Muslims, right? I think the money quotation, probably saw it, but the governor general who denies the Jesuit um, request for a mission among the tribes, quote unquote, guy by the name of Sharon, he said, he said this, um, 
submission will only be definite. You know, we, we, we have to tolerate Islam and we have to convince Muslims that, quote, religion is independent of the temporal power. He said, quote this in the book, submission will only be definite on the day when we have completely persuaded the Andijan, that's his word, that while protecting our interests, we will do no harm to their religious belief. And later in a document, he calls their religious belief their end team, their personal, their private, I think, if I recall correctly. And so here I'm inspired by the work of Talal Assad, of course, but just that the secular state, like the colonial state, even when it claims to tolerate religious minorities, has this interest in getting in there and teaching religious minorities what even they should consider is like a legitimate or a compatible version of their own religion. So that's something that was going on and something that still goes on today. Yeah. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that's a great place, I think, maybe to, to wrap up. There's a thousand other things we could talk about in this book. There's so many phenomenal personal stories or so many other themes and sub arguments. And it's really, it's really, really rich, as I said at the beginning, but genuinely, this is, it was a great read. Um, well, so maybe, so uh, really, really, I'm sorry, I cut you off, but I No, I, you're fine. You're fine. I was just going to ask maybe as a last question, sort of, it might be premature given the fact that your book just came out, but do you have a, a next place that this work is taking you some, some sense of sort of what you're hoping for next? Or are you very much wrapped up in, in the world of this book for the moment? I'm not wrapped up in the world of this book. <laughs> it's off your plate now. It's in I'm, the world. Of, I'm so neurotic. Like I don't even want to look at, it. <laughs> I, uh, I don't want to find all the mistakes, but, um, uh, thank you for those kind words, by the way. And I wanted to just say again, what an honor it is to, to be here with you. And, um, I think if, if, if I remember what you told me correctly to be your first guest on, on what promises to be, um, a really wonderful tenure, I'm sure at, at the helm of the new books network here in French studies, so congratulations. Just, just honored to, to get to be your guest here. Um, what am I thinking of next? Very, very uh, emergent. <laughs> I, we didn't talk about this other uh, story. Is that the other story-driven chapter too much? Chapter seven, which talks about the, 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 the ultimate fates or some of the stories that happen, some of the children that La Vigerie, quote unquote, adopted. But I, I tell the story in that chapter of a guy who was named Kadur and who the missionary christened Felix, Felix Kadur, who was trying to marry a French girl and uh, ran up against some obstacles, perhaps for racialized reasons, right? And then was, was treated badly when he returned to Algeria. Um, I won't say anything more about that, but there's a, a, a um, the other story that I think to me is most powerful in this book, besides the story of the, of the Khodra brothers, if people only wanted to read chapters three and seven the two sort of narrative chapters, the two sort of micro-historical chapters, that would be fine with me. <laughs> Those are the ones that are close to my heart, as I said. But um, that young man, Felix Kadur, he, at the missionary's suggestion, is going to write a petition, you probably remember, to an association that existed in Paris just for a few years. It was called the Association for the Protection of the Indigen. So this is this is not really related to my current work on Catholics, but I'm interested in that association. And this was, um, this was an association that was founded in part by, um, you know, you know him, uh, Paul Leroy de Beaulieu, the famous liberal economist and advocate of colonialism, sort of came around to like, it's okay, this is not, you know, we, you know, classical economic liberals are supposed to be like, you know, tariff free and uplift everybody, but actually colonialism is good for so it's, it can be harmonized with classical liberalism here, if I if I'm glossing him correctly. 
Um, lots of people have worked on him, of course. Really important um, cheerleader for for Third Republic colonialism. But he's the guy who who founded this association, and with other people, even some people of color. If if my preliminary soundings, uh, some people from the the West Indies, for example, who were students in in Paris, joined this association, and then it falls apart pretty quickly. And to me, it's one of those situations where you have. And I'm going to be presentist again. I'm going to make a, a presentist <laughs> comparison that that may or may not be true, but like um, a humanitarian, liberal humanitarian NGO, right? That is not actually uh, anti-colonialist, but is just trying to put a band-aid on some of the abuses. And so, it, it's from what I understand, that association became a place, or particularly in the Algerian context, they were particularly critical of of Republican settlers and people like Le Roi Beaulieu, as you probably know. Uh, later, I think he he did he he thought that the settler colonialists, I think he became an advocate of more indirect. You know, he did, he didn't want the French to be set, sending a bunch of settlers elsewhere because it would create problems and, and racism like you had in Algeria, right? And so mainly he's criticizing abuses there. I think in French Algeria, if I'm if I'm guessing correctly. But anyway, this is an association that is short lived. It has a journal, I think. Uh, that they I have not I, I, I want to look at it. I think there's maybe one or two copies of it that, <laughs> at the BNF, and I haven't gotten over there yet. But maybe I'll just have somebody take some photos for now. But in any case, a story of a uh, a person that was not systemically against, or an association that was not systemically against colonialism the way we want them to be uh, today, but was really just trying to put put band aids on it so that it that it could that it could thrive even even more. Right, and then what were the reasons why that association fell apart, uh, and what were some of the conflicts on the board of that association? Um, one of the one of the men who was on the board of it, or was a member of it, from the West Indies, um, I, I don't remember his name at the moment, Martinique or Guadeloupe. Uh, he he resigned from the association after the Beaulieu wrote something kind of racist as, as the preface of one of his uh, uh, edition of one of his books, if I'm remembering story correctly. So it seems like an association that really is at the heart of some interesting debates there in the 1890s about humanitarianism uh, and the continuing imperial violence. That sounds absolutely fascinating. Well, will you be patient before it comes out until you can get your hands on these things? But uh, but no, I very much look forward to hearing more about that story when you get the chance. That's an idea. That's, that's, that, that's, that's the next 10 years of my life, right? All right, we won't hold you to it then. It'll, it'll be a later project. We'll come back next time it comes out, see how it checks up. Thank you so awesome. much. Thank you so much for being on today. I really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next time on New Books in French Studies. I appreciate you, Sarah. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with me. Thank you.